Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. For George Stevenson and Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Today I have the privilege of visiting with George S.J. Anderson and discussing a book that he's titled Sunset Under the Poet's Tree. This is a rather ambitious read, 813 pages. Good morning, George. Good morning. Tell me about your book. I know this is drawn from personal story and uh, a fictionalized account of, of how you're dealing with a, a difficult time in your life. Tell me about that. Yeah, the, uh, the story was uh, created uh, basically after my wife passed away in uh, 2011. And uh, one of the situations that occurred for me was I was dealing with a lot of her insurance issues and so forth. And uh, a lady I was speaking with on the phone apparently had gone home after we had spoken. And she found that two of her friends had committed suicide together. Mm. Um, shortly after that, the uh, I had to call her back and found out about that situation. And uh, she said she had gone to a website that was uh, about my wife and said uh, it, it made her feel good that uh, she wanted to be that kind of a, of a person. She wanted to be like my wife Lois and not like her friends. Uh, it, it struck me that someone who was not affected by cancer at all uh, and had been uh, had never known her could be that affected by uh, her story um, it, it uh, kind of prompted me to think well if someone who doesn't know anything about my wife would be that affected in a positive way then why not why not try and, and put her story together so uh, that's what I did. It took, uh, I was expecting it to be done in about a year, but uh, her life after I got started with it was so extensive uh, and so dynamic that I eventually uh, found out it took me two years to write it. So that, that, was, that was one part of it. Uh, the other part of it was uh, during the last year that my wife was, was uh, dying, I was writing a book or writing a story actually to try to deal with my feelings you know of 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 her dying and uh one night I had a dream that I was in a medieval village where everyone there was uh when they were born they were obligated to carry a stone and the stone had to be carried their entire life until uh, they passed away, and then someone from their family would take this stone and put it into a wall. Hmm. Now, that was the entirety of the dream. And from that, I went and uh, created villages and uh, communities, rules, regulations, why, this, why the wall was there and, and what was on the other side. Uh, eventually, I realized that this story was... Uh, about dealing with the the process of dying, so I included that in the book 
in order to show people how you know a life that you you lose uh, can affect you, and you know what would come after. Uh, so I thought it was a I thought it was a good uh, combination of of stories. Um, one of the things about the book I I didn't want to have happen was to be known just as a a breast cancer book. I didn't want it to be just a story about a breast cancer survivor. Uh, and adding this story to it, I think, uh, puts a dynamic into the book that probably isn't in many others. Um, well, and she, the other thing, I she 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 had been, she had been combating breast cancer since 1992, so it was a long and and ferocious battle. Yeah, the uh, the onset of the breast cancer was a, a complete accident in finding it. Uh, my son, who was only 12 at the time, and her were were uh, kind of roughhousing down in the basement, and uh, it it actually was found because he accidentally kicked her at the top of the right breast. Uh, it caused a bruise, and the bruise uh, continued to grow constantly for almost three months. We just felt it was some kind of a deep tissue tear, and we ended up going to the doctor and found out it was a stage three breast cancer, hmm. which, in layman's terms, basically means that not only was breast tissue involved, but it was also it had also spread to the lymph nodes. Uh, the prognosis on that was only five years. We we at, at the time in 1992, um, what was available, they they figured. They were not going to be able to uh, uh, to uh, save her much beyond that. Uh, of course, people had been known to live longer than five, which she did, but uh, it would be it would be hard put. As it was, uh, my wife survived ten years without any recurrences. But then in 2001, the uh, the cancer came back as metastatic, and by that time it was in the bones and the lung. And uh, I think even the liver had been affected toward the very end. And but, in, uh, a, in addition, in addition to to being a writer, you also have a background in the medical profession. Yes, uh, I've been a registered nurse since 1975, um, and that has taken me through a lot of different phases with uh, different kinds of patients. Uh, at one point in my career, I was dealing with. Uh, uh, oncology patients for about two or three years. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it came simultaneously with the same time that my uh, wife was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, which made it extremely difficult to uh, to deal with both uh, cancer on both of those fronts, both on the home front and at uh, at work. I was never really away from it. So it made it extremely, extremely hard. In fact, because of that, I don't do oncology. Uh, it brings back too many bad memories for me. So I, I basically work in a uh, orthopedic uh, neuro floor at the moment. Uh, it keeps me away from the, the different cancer patients. I, I say I feel I feel very, uh, you know, very good working with them, but I can't do it on a on a consistent basis like. Uh, like an oncology nurse would do. Where did the title Sunset Under the Poet's Tree come from? Where did it originate? Ever since I was very small, very young, I had dreams 
where I would be at a very peaceful site. Every time I had dreams like this, there was a tree, always. It was either by a stream or a mountain or overlooking a valley or whatever. Uh, whenever I had those kind of dreams, I always had very meaningful um, things happen in that. Um, and what I've learned from those dreams is those, that is my point of inspiration. So in a way, the poet's tree for me is, is my point of inspiration. And that's where I go when I need to uh, charge up my life. And that's where the, the concept of the poet's tree is at. So that's why, that's why it was called what it is. <laughs> How would you describe your book? What, what, uh, although it's a fiction, there are some elements of truth in it. How would you describe it to someone? Well, it, in, its, in its entirety, it is basically a biography of my wife. Uh, that is, that is the, the sole construct of the book. Um, it extends from before she had breast cancer. She had a lot of uh, personal uh, problems in her own life that she had to overcome, her own demons. And eventually, uh, you know, we, we get to that point where the breast cancer is discovered and uh, she makes some incredible strides, not only personally, but uh, professionally as well. Uh, the, the fictional part of the book, of course, is the is what I call the legend of the stones, uh, wherein the the, the two characters in uh, that story uh, are drawn apart, and eventually they, uh, as in my own life, I lose my wife. In, in the fictional story, the, the young man loses his fiancée, and in the, in the end we have to come to some kind of realization of what that is to lose somebody. And uh, that's, that's as boiled down to the uh, to the core as I can make that uh, for the two stories but that is that is what they're about have you written other books that are not yes. dealing with this subject in in off ways I they they still have some element of breast cancer in them I probably won't write a book at all without having that in um, I've written a book called uh, seasons in cancer which is about the original uh, diagnosis with my wife. I've also written in Chicken Soup for the Volunteer Soul. I have a story there that uh, deals with a couple that came to one of our support groups and uh, they were having a hard time. And anyway, I wrote that story about them. I have written poetry since I've been 14 years old and uh, I have numerous uh, poems that are not related to cancer published in various collections through the years. So those, those are kind of my, my literary accomplishments uh, to date at this point. And you also have done some sketching and artwork. Yes, I, I, uh, I kind of had an innate ability to draw, but in uh, 1982 to 1984, I took uh, courses to kind of learn to draw. I learned how to work in pastels, charcoal, pencil. Those are my, my favorite mediums. And I actually illustrated uh, Seasons in Cancer with about 10 different drawings. I wanted to illustrate Sunset, but as you can imagine, writing 813 pages was no easy thing to do. So I uh, kind of turfed that off to my, my nephew, who's an art student at Penn State, and he was able to get some of the drawings done for me for that book. 
Tell me about the aspect of numbers in your book, 18, 12, and so on. Well, the my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in, on October 12th, 1992. Um, when her diagnosis came around the following year, I felt that the breast cancer or her cancer survival date was almost as important as a birthday. So in order to celebrate that, I had to come up with something. And what I did was I got 12 roses for her. The first year I had one pink rose and the other 11 were, were white. As the years progressed, I added a, a pink rose to that dozen until we got to the number 12, which is her date of diagnosis. And then I added just one single white rose. And the white rose always signified the hope that she would make another year. The last year that she lived, though, she had, uh, I gave her 18 roses and one, one white one, uh, or 18 pink roses and one white one. And that was to signify her survival of 18 years. And it was kind of a bittersweet time because I knew that she would never make her 19th year. Hmm. Uh, so we both kind of had a good cry that year with the, with the white rose being in there. But I utilized those numbers through the story uh, in a lot of ways. One of the things I did was the, in, in one of the um, situations, I used 18 pink uh, plates of glass with one single white plate of glass in the center. Uh, another time I used 18 bottles that were pink and one white one. Uh, again, I kind of utilized that concept of hope that that white one was their their way of uh, hoping to continue their journey, and uh, that was that was how I utilized that. So those 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 numbers occur throughout the book, kind of the tide of two stories together, but at the same time they have a a special significance for me, uh, and I think maybe if if people you know realize that and they look for those kind of numbers through the book, they'll realize what I've what I've been trying to accomplish with them. Certainly, a beautiful symbolism and very poignant. Additionally, your wife survived some very challenging life issues as a young person growing up, didn't she? Your wife, as the child of an alcoholic parent, learned how to survive, learned how to fight, didn't she? We had a child and we had a home and. Everything was going just well, so she overcame a lot of stuff before she ever got breast cancer. And then when the breast cancer hit her, um, like I say in some of the statements, she could have just said, that, well, you know, I'll just sit back and let this thing take me. But that was not the way she she was growing up. She she fought for everything. She was a fighter. So it was, uh, it was an, imp- she had an impressive life. But what will make it interesting for you is the other story is uh, fictional, and I was as creative and as poetic with that as I could be <laughs> to keep people like yourself interested in, in, in reading the biography. How do you think your wife would react to the telling of her story? Well, I, the way I did it, I think she would find it kind of daring because <laughs> it's a, you know, it's, it's certainly different, a different way of doing a biography than you would have you would have anticipated i i think she probably would have been a little i wouldn't say the word embarrassed but i think she would be a little taken aback because i don't think she truly believed she did as much for breast cancer advocacy as she thought i think when she 
when I sat back and, and looked at all the different awards that I have here, even in the house today, and the what's behind those awards, uh, the kind of work that she did was uh, it was pretty impressive. And uh, I, I think if she realized the impact that she had on people, uh, people she has met and people she hadn't met, uh, it would make a very positive influence on on the on people in general. I, I think they would feel very good. It, it's not a book to be sad about. I think you you've got to realize that it's uh, it was a, a life well lived, and if you want to, um, you know, it, as you go through your life, you you can keep thinking to yourself, what is it that I can change? Uh, what 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 can I change? What can't I change? Uh, she always evaluated. Uh, the things that were possible and the things that weren't, and uh, the things that were possible, she went for. That was that was always her positive her her positive thinking that she was always using, even when she wasn't doing well. Are there any other key messages you'd like to share from your wife's story? Well, I, I kind of like I have said, I, I feel that uh, it's a story of of how to live a life well, even under the most dire circumstances. Uh, that you don't have, uh, you don't have to uh, sit back just because you have a, a negative thing come into your life. You, you can turn that around and make it a positive thing. And if, if there's anything at all, that's probably the thing I would like to, to get across. It sounds like a very meaningful read. Again, the yeah. story title is Sunset Under the Poet's Tree, the biography and fictional account weaved in on the life of Lois Ann Anderson, the wife of George S.J. Anderson, the author. Thank you, George, for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Tell me, where can we get a copy of your book? Well, the the book is available, of course, at the Ex Libris uh, website, uh, www.exlibris. Uh, it's also available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and I believe you can link up to some of those sites on my Facebook page, which is uh, George S.J. Anderson on Facebook. Those are, those are all places right now that you can get the book. Well, thank you. I'm sure this was a challenging book to put together, but certainly an oh, inspirational yeah. read. I can tell that from just visiting with you. For Ex Libris On Air and for George Stevenson, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. 
Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you, here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today we have a very interesting book to share. The book is titled, A Football Wives Research Study for the Love of the Games, and our author, Sandra Merriweather. Welcome, Sandra. Oh, welcome. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. I understand this is a research book in some regards. What would you say describes your book best? Well, my book is about the study of concussions and head injuries in athletes, and I went into the school district to assess the knowledge of registered nurses to see how much they knew about the updates in new concussion research. A lot has been in the news lately about the concussions in the Professional Football League. Does your book address any of those issues? Well, I really um, don't want to comment on that side of it, because my angle is a little bit different in regards to that. I'm trying to educate the community about the new findings on how to treat concussions in the young athletes. And what motivated you to get involved in this? Well, I've seen many head injuries, and uh, I've seen a couple of young athletes get hurt as well, and I realized that from doing the study that a lot of people are totally, like, unaware of what the new research findings are, so I just wanted to do a piece to educate the public about what to do if something occurs. The information you're highlighting in your book, does it have positive direction for people to take if they suspect an injury? How does your book approach the subject? No, it's all based on the research, and it has nothing to do with my opinions because I wanted to keep my opinions out of it, and I wanted to be based upon strictly facts and evidence, so that's what I did. Your research findings, what did you discover from them? I discovered that um, there are there are some issues that need to be addressed so far as making a separate guideline for the young athlete when they come into the ER room from the field of injury because children 
children's uh, injuries are different and their brains are not quite as developed as an adult and there are specific guidelines that should be addressed and not uh, the medical professionals should not go by or utilize the same checklist that they have for head injuries as adults and children. How long did it take you to put this research together for the book? It took me approximately two years, just about two years. And in your findings, what do you want the reader to take away from this book once they read it? I want the reader to come away with knowledge that has been based on evidence. And I would like them to know the signs and symptoms of different types of head injuries. Number one, there are many different types of injuries and conditions, and I don't think they know about it, and you don't treat each one in the same manner. But there's a condition called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or its uh, initials are CTE, and this is a neurological disorder that's associated with repeated concussion. This condition is associated with the presence of tall proteins in the brain and can cause, you know, future problems so far as uh, long-term neurodegenerative uh, consequences. Are there any obvious signs that we should be alert for? Uh, yes. Um, many signs that would um, that a person could be alerted to look into would be a change in the playing ability of the athlete. We could also observe if there is uh, a vacant stare, like if the client or athlete um, just stares or has fogginess and they uh, exemplify confusion or they start to slow down. Also, you could observe them for memory disturbance, loss of consciousness. Um, there is, of course, in coordination that is obvious and many times they complain of a headache, dizziness, and nausea and vomiting. Now, some of those symptoms describe teenagers. <laughs> yes. Um, also, there is um, some post-concussive symptoms that could also alert us, and that would be a headache that, you know, has the tendency to get worse, and it just won't go away. That is uh, another key. Also, muscular numbness or weak weakness and um, the ongoing nausea and vomiting that we just talked about. But we should also w- watch for blurred speech, blurred speech. Well, my son is an adult and still regrets that I did not encourage him to participate in football. I encouraged him to be a tennis pro, which he became. And he still looks back with yeah. some regret, but I have no regrets personally. I I saw an interview of a professional football player a couple of weeks ago who's well-known, and his comment was he would not have his son playing in football as it stands currently. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that was his observation. Well, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't play football or basketball or baseball or hockey. 
because there's injuries in, in, you know, those areas as well. Absolutely. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we should be precautious because, see, that, there's also another um, uh, problem that's called, it's called second impact. And with second impact, that's when you run into your problems because you have these repeated concussions without treatment. My book is about getting the initial treatment upon the initial contact. That's the key. And so the public is totally unaware of this. They just say, oh, concussion, concussion. And everybody will say, oh, no, don't play sports. But if we don't play, have our kids playing or being active, then we're going to run into a whole other set of problems with a sedentary lifestyle that brings about other problems like, you know, diabetes and things like that. So we want to keep our children, we want to keep our children healthy and active. You know what I'm saying? We Absolutely. We don't want to, uh, to um, you know, stop them from playing. But the key is that when we get a, a injury or our um, students, suffer an injury, an initial impact, that is the time to go get cleared from the physician is upon the initial impact because the brain needs time to heal. And that's my message, that we have to allow the brain significant time to heal. And as you notice, that's what the trend is now. If you get hit, then you don't need to play. You need to be evaluated. Good advice. Uh-huh. That's that's angle I'm coming from because I'm I'm I am a school nurse educator and so I deal with the adolescent as and this is what we I'm trying to get them to learn that this is really important and that this also needs to be developed into a um, individualized education plan for the student vital information and, yes can a parent read this book and understand the details, or is this a little too complicated for them? Oh, no. It's not too hard or complicated for anybody because I really broke it down, and I made it short intentionally so that people wouldn't get bored and just, like, toss it away. Um, it was written intentionally short, and it's very um, complicated. You've also included some great photographs in the back of this book. Explain those. Oh, yes. I have some great photographs of all my husband's friends. And the reason why I did that was for the um, fans as well, because they need to understand, and, and they do, they really love these athletes because these athletes so often uh, get away from their family to spend time with other people's children and they get involved in a lot of things, you know. And so they're like coaches, trainers, you know, they give back to the um, community. They run football camps. They do whatever they can to give back to these kids. So I wanted to dedicate this book to all the former and present athletes because I've got a chance to see what they do while they're playing in the game and after the game. I have several first cousins that also played in the game 
of the NFL. So I know a lot about it and their contribution. So I wanted to dedicate the book back to them. And these athletes that are in the book, they're also friends of ours. <laughs> Just for the listeners, Mike Merriweather, your husband, was an yes. NFL player. Yes, Mike Merriweather was a great linebacker and he was a sack leader for the Steelers for a number of years. And if I I believe that Harrison may be the one that beat my husband's record. My husband held that record, I believe, over 22 to 23 years amazing. as a sack leader. Absolutely amazing. The book, again, is. is titled A Football Wife's Research Study for the Love of the Games. Thank you for sharing your information, Sandra Merriweather. Oh, you're welcome. This sounds like an important read for anybody who's got a child or a young adult in sports of any kind. Where can we get a copy of this yeah, book? you can get a copy. Well, you know what? I have a couple of things I would like to say. Okay. And one is that I have my very own website, and this website will be updated um, very often. And it's www.mrs, which is M-R-S, capital P-R-O, 57, healthtips.com forward slash. That's www.mrsprofi57healthtips.com forward slash. I am also on YouTube. All you have to do is really just put my name, Sandra Merriweather, in the search engine, and you will find me on YouTube. And on YouTube, you will see some great clips of Mike and some of the other players. So I advise you to just kind of take a look at that. I did this for everybody, for the parents, for the coaches, trainers, for the students, you know, and, um, and the different sports teams. Because in the book, I have NBA players boxers, and NFL players. Absolutely fabulous. Again, the book is titled A Football Wives Research Study for the Love of the Games. Thank you, Sandra. You're welcome. For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris on Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. 
For Steve Jorgensen and Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Today we visit with Tommy Little. Yes, Tommy, T-O-M-M-I-E, named by my grandmother. Well, it says on the front of your book, Thomas L. Little, and I knew you wanted to be called Tommy, so that got me a little confused for a second. Uh, the book title is A Lonesome Warrior, A True Story of a Near-Death Experience. Reading about your background, Tommy, it says you were a former Marine drill sergeant, a judo instructor, a lawyer, a law professor, coach, international martial artist, and former state legislature. By looking at your bio, it would be easy to conclude that you're a little bit hyper. Is that correct? Well, nobody would ever call me hyper. I think they would call me calm but busy. Calm but busy. This book, what brought it about? How did you come to write it? What was your motivation on this? I was in Africa. I was a volunteer through the State Department with a group called World Teach from Harvard, where I had my training. They vetted me for a year, and I went over as a volunteer, paid my own way. And I was put out in the bush, which I asked for the hardest job in the hardest place, and they gave it to me. I went out in the plane, and it landed in like a cornfield, and they threw my bag out. And I said, which way do I go? And they said, that way. And it was a tar road. I grabbed my bag and I started walking down the tar road and I saw a cop car coming toward me and it did a U-ring and picked me up and took me to a town which had about <laughs> maybe 400 people and it was called Fatima Malilo and I stayed at a, 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 a to say hotel would be silly it looked like right out of a movie it was patch huts and all that right on the Zambezi and then I was put out into a uh, uh, I found that nobody knew where my where my uh, school was going to be. I mean, nobody could find it. So finally, everybody sorted it out. It took about three or four weeks, and I ended up out in the bush in a place called Seco Senyana. And I got my little hut, which was fantastic. It's had 17 paces long and 21 paces wide. And if you ask me why I know, it's because it's in the dark. You have to find your pee bucket. Oh, my. <laughs> so um, uh, I was doing... Coaching judo, was just, which I knew they knew nothing about, and I wanted to start an Olympic team. And I was teaching English in the local uh, high school, which was an area high school. They were a brand-new country, brand-new uh, UN-authorized country called Namibia. After a few months uh, of, of training, I was walking back from practice one day, holding hands with one of my – everybody holds hands over there. It's an interesting point. I was holding hands with one of my students, and we were pulling each other off balance, and I got back, and I was so full of sand, I went up to the hostel at the high school to take a shower. There's no hot water, of course. And as soon as I turned the water on, it hit my forehead, and I went into shock. Wow. I had cerebral malaria. I didn't know it at the time. I thought I had the flu. And I came out of there, and I was shaking like a leaf, and I went through the village, and everybody knew how sick I was. And the bottom line is, without stretching the story too long, I actually died from the cerebral malaria. And I woke up three days later, and I remembered everything that happened to me while I was gone. And I was lucky. I, I left my uh, left the, the Bush Hospital. I pulled all the tubes out. I woke up. The priest was giving me the last rites. He was in the middle of the downstroke on blessing me when I sat up and grabbed his uh, skirt and started crying. He ran out of the room. Uh, nurses ran out of the room. The doctor, whose wife died the day before in the same epidemic, ran out of the room. I pulled the tubes out, and I walked back to my safe house. And when I got back there, the family that was living there went on holiday. So I stayed there overnight, and I went into shock again. And the next morning, some Egyptian uh, judo players came to the back door, and they found me. 
And they got me to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, I kept telling them, I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. But I could see them holding me, and I wasn't talking. <laughs> wow. And when I got there, they put me in a wheelchair, and they wheeled me in. And I was laying in the bed, and I was looking up at these beautiful black faces. And this lady was going, mm, mm, mm. Because they, you know, I was in bad trouble. Next thing I knew, I was over top of them, looking down through them at myself on the bed. And then I just floated off. I saw my uncle was the first person I saw, and then I spent a lot of time coming back and forth to my body and then going back again, and I put it all on uh, on the tape recorder. It took me a couple of hours to, to get it all together, and I saved it. I sent it to America, and I saved it for 10 years. I was too embarrassed to tell anybody about it because I thought maybe I was crazy or something. You know, you know, I was really sick. And uh, after 10 years, I saw people reporting their near-death experiences and figured, what the hell? Mine was real. <laughs> and I started to break the book from the tape. That's exactly what happened. And how long ago did you begin writing this book? Well, the book was that, that, that's on, on the market now was published in March. I started writing it, well, the day I, oh, maybe, good question. I guess I started writing it, I started dictating it, Maybe about uh, five, six, eight years ago. I don't know, somewhere in there. It took me a long time to write it. I just didn't really want to put it out there. Right, and the initial story was back in, was it 1958 or so, or was it uh, later than that? No, it was much later. It was about, let's see, I went to Africa in 90, I left in 93. This happened in 94, around the summer of 94, our summer. So that's about 10 years, or about nine years ago, eight, eight nine years ago. And you've managed to put this in a book that's 798 pages long, so there's more to this story than just the near-death experience. Am I understanding that? Oh, absolutely. That? Yes. I, what I had done was I had written a book before about my, my marine experiences, my judo experiences, my, my alcoholic experiences, my, all my trauma and my life experiences that led me to go to Africa in the first place. So I added the African story to the end of it, and that's what's published as a lonesome warrior. It's a great book for military. Anybody that's interested in spiritual issues that aren't connected to formal church, uh, uh, people are just interested in a good story that where somebody survives a traumatic life. That's, that's basically all it is. And how would you introduce this book to someone that doesn't know you and know of your history? Well, if I was talking to you, I would say the book starts on the day that the Japanese uh, uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, when I was a young orphan living with my grandmother and uh, and it takes off from there my high school experience my Marine Corps experience where I learned judo and my my competitive judo experience as I started going through life and uh, and, and all the other things that normal things that happened to everybody that for me turned out to be <laughs> oh I, I forgot I also am the guy that invented uh, what you now call 401k and there's a whole section in it on that there's a business experience really all-encompassing. It's your life story plus a little bit extra, a little salt and pepper to make it interesting. Life story plus my afterlife story. Right, exactly. <laughs> One thing that you'd like people to take away from reading this book, what would that be? That don't be afraid of death. It was the most fantastic experience I could ever have had. I think about it every single day. There's not a day goes by that I don't miss the experience and want to go back. The only thing that keeps me here is I don't believe in suicide. If suicide was legal and there was nothing wrong with it, I'd have been born long ago. That's fascinating. Are there scenes in this book that stand out 
to the reader that if it was turned into a movie, for example, what scene would that be? Oh, it'd be a fantastic movie. Uh, I mean, that's what people tell me. They read it. I, I don't think that way. Everybody I know that's read it, and there's about 600 of them out there now, tells me they can't put it down. So on that basis alone, it's exciting. It's a, you know, a lot of exciting things happen. I just, I'm reading it out loud now to produce a website for free for anybody to just watch me reading it. I've got about 19 chapters finished. The last two chapters I finished was my, when I, I'm an alcoholic and it was my last drink and was how my daughter saved my life. I mean, that kind of stuff is interesting to people because they're all going through it, although they don't admit it. This is true. A lot of people are looking for some vision of hope out there. And, yeah, and while I was in Africa, it was fantastic. I mean, I was all alone. Uh, I stayed there 12 years. I formed the Geo, uh, Olympic Geo team. I started a, um, a, a university. Um, I ran a preschool. And just the, the hard life, it was just a hard life. I started a, a drug and alcohol rehab in the desert. And the stories are all quaint, but they're all good. They're good stories and they're original and they're... You don't read them anyplace else. Well, I love the title of your book, A Lonesome Warrior. That gives a lot of visuals in my mind of your life and what you went through and where you are today. And that's that 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 happened late in the game. That was that came to me sitting here in the chair I'm sitting in now, and I live alone. I'm single. I've been alone for a long time. I am I am I am lonely, but never really lonesome. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm lonesome. So I, that's how I named it that way. This book, is it different than others out in the marketplace, or are there books that recount stories well, like this? The, 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 the one lady that, that from Texas, uh, Gloria Mitchum, uh, wrote me. She had a near-death experience. She said it was the most fantastic near-death experience book she ever read, and she had been looking for them. Uh, it's, pretty comp- it's pretty much along the same lines as everybody else. Whenever I see somebody had a near-death experience, I like to read the book and see what they saw, what they felt, how they were. We're all pretty much saying the same thing. And, uh, but mine's pretty clear. It's, uh, I, had, I had always been interested in these kind of things, so that when I went over to the other side, I had a million questions on my mind. So I started asking questions, and I got the answers. But I was told not to discuss the, end of the, the answers until after 2013, and I could never figure out why until I saw the Higgs boson discovered last July, in 2012, because the Higgs boson, which they now affectionately call the God particle, proves beyond a doubt that all that exists is made of God. I think that's a pretty good takeaway. A great takeaway. Was there a challenging part of writing this book? You said you had dictated the basic outline years ago. Were there other challenges in putting this together? Having anybody believe me was the biggest challenge, and I, you know, I just couldn't get anybody to believe me. And finally, I got somebody to type it for me, and my daughter, by the way, and uh, and I sent it to Ex Libris, and the editing process went from there. They're terrific; they're a terrific publisher, and they did. I've done three books with them so far. The first two were complete duds, but this one seems to go. People like it. Tommy, you may not want to discuss this, but how about giving us the name of the other duds that you've written? Well, one was called The Beast, and I wrote it right after 9-11. I wrote it as a uh, 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 satire on uh, Bin Laden. It's, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's very, very funny. It's hysterically funny. And the second one I wrote is called The Tooth Fairy, and it's also a satire on my Irish background from upstate Pennsylvania. 
And uh, but the, both of them were real duds. I mean, the public wouldn't like them. There was too much personal stuff in it. Well, so far they haven't liked it. Perhaps they'll be rediscovered. You never know. You never know. <laughs> if I throw enough interviews with somebody like you, I might even be discovered. <laughs> well, there you go. I got seven hundred ninety-eight pages of interesting reading. And again, the title of the book is "A Lonesome Warrior: A True Story of a Near-Death Experience," and the author Tommy Little. Thank you, Tommy, for visiting with us today. Thank you, Jay. And how can we get copies of your book and find your website? On Amazon or any of the other booksellers. Uh, I, my website is not finished yet because I'm adding things on every week. But uh, you can get it on Amazon. There's there's quite a few have been sold on Amazon, and people have made reviews on there. They can welcome to read the reviews. And they also can find your other books or other things of interest related to you by, I guess, doing a search under Tommy Little. Would that be the right yes. way to do it? Yes, that would be it. And they would also find a lot of training videos that I make for meditation and relaxation, which is called in our martial arts field, Zazen. Fabulous. But, uh, if anybody contacts me, I'll send them everything. I'm, I'm, I'm not in this to make money. I haven't made a dime off it and don't intend to, and if I did, I'd give it away. Tommy, you're my kind of guy. I guess I need to keep in contact with you. Please do. I could use some extra funds once in a while. And, of course, I'm not serious. You also go by Thomas L. Little, if you want to go formally, but Tommy is your preferred name. I tell everybody, call me Tommy. I'm 77. I don't want to be reminded who I'm old. But (laughs) Thomas L. Little is my actual name. I'm a lawyer. It's Thomas L. Little Esquire, and that's why it's on the book. Fabulous. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Jay. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.